Good afternoon and welcome to the 188th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today we have a discussion of the United States military in the pandemic with Stars and Stripes reporter Erica Earle. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, December 15th, 2020, there are 1,630,211 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 16,636,487 cases reported in the United States. There are now a total of 302,294 deaths reported from COVID-19 in the United States. That's up from 299,737 cases reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Charlie Pride, country music's first black superstar, dies at 86. This was written by Bill Friskix Warren, published December 12th in the New York Times. Charlie Pride, the son of a Mississippi sharecropper who went on to become the first black superstar in country music, died on Saturday in hospice care in Dallas, Texas. He was 86. His publicist, Jeremy Westby, said the cause was complications of COVID-19. A bridge builder who broke into country music amid the racial unrest of the 1960s, Mr. Pride was one of the most successful singers ever to work in that largely white genre. Placing 52 records in the country top 10 from 1966 to 1987. Singles like Kiss an Angel, Good Morning, and Is Anybody Going to San Antonio among his 29 recordings were among his 29 recordings to reach number one in the country chart. At RCA, the label for which he recorded for three decades, Mr. Pride was second only to Elvis Presley in record sales. The reasons for Mr. Pride's appeal were undeniable. A resonant baritone voice, an innate ear for melody, an affable demeanor, and camera-friendly good looks. In interviews, however, he sometimes played down the role that his blackness had played in his career, especially when confronted with racial prejudice. People thought it was going to be hard, but it wasn't, Mr. Pride said, talking about what it was like as a black man to gain a foothold in country music in the 1960s in a 1997 interview with Nashville Scene. I never got any flack or anything, and that's what's been astonishing to most reporters, especially since I came along at the height of the sit-ins and bus boycotts. Mr. Pride's 1994 autobiography paints a more fraught picture of his early years in the music business. The racial element was always there, he wrote, with Jim Henderson in Pride, the Charlie Pride story. 
RCA Records, for example, once mailed promotional copies of his earliest recordings to journalists and disc jockeys across the country without including the standard publicity photos, thus concealing his race, whether intentionally or not. The label credited those first singles to country Charlie Pride, as if to underscore his affinity with rural white culture. Once his racial identity became evident, Mr. Pride wrote, he often had trouble securing bookings and sometimes endured the indignity of having southern disc jockeys refer to him on the air with a racial epithet. The dignity and grace with which Mr. Pride and his wife of 63 years, Rosine Pride, navigated their way through the white world of country music became a beacon to his fans and fellow performers. Mr. Pride himself was more self-effacing in assessing his impact, but nevertheless expressed some satisfaction in having a role in furthering integration. We're not colorblind yet, he wrote in his autobiography, but we've advanced a few paces along the path, and I like to think I've contributed something to that process. Charlie Frank Pride was born on March 18, 1934, on a 40-acre sharecropping farm in Sledge, Mississippi, the fourth of 11 children of Tessie Stewart Pride and Mac Pride Sr. His father had meant to name him Charles, but a clerical error on his birth certificate officially left him with the first name Charlie. Using his earnings from picking cotton, Charlie bought his first guitar, a $10 Sears Roebuck model, when he was 14. His father, a strict man, frowned on what he believed to be the unsavoriness of the blues then prevalent in Mississippi, preferring instead the music of the Grand Ole Opry and thus contributing to his son's early devotion to Hank Williams and Roy Acuff. Rather than choosing to become a singer, however, Mr. Pride initially decided to pursue a career in baseball in the Negro American League, leaving home at 16 to pitch for the Memphis Red Sox, among other organizations, and the Boise Yankees, an Idaho affiliate of the New York Yankees. He married Ebby Rosine Corin in 1956 and was drafted into the Army, interrupting his baseball career, which had already suffered a setback when he was injured while pitching for Boise. After his discharge from the service two years later, Mr. Pride returned to baseball in the early 1960s, accepting invitations to try out with California Angels and the New York Mets, but was ultimately not offered a contract by either franchise. The Prides by this time had relocated to Helena, Montana, where Mr. Pride played both semi-pro baseball and music at social events for the local smelting plant where he worked. He and his wife started a family in Helena, where Mr. Pride came to the attention of the country singers Red Sovine and Red Foley. They eventually persuaded him to make a go of it in country music. The demo recordings Mr. Pride made on arriving in Nashville in the early 1960s initially failed to attract interest. It was not until the producer Jack Cowboy Clement supervised a session of his in the summer of 1965 that Chet Atkins finally took notice and offered Mr. Pride a record deal. Just Between You and Me, the third single from Mr. Pride's sessions with Mr. Clement, reached the country top 10 in 1967, inaugurating a string of hits that extended into the late 1980s. In 1971, the year that saw the release of Kiss and Angel Good Morning, his eighth number one country single and sole top 40 pop hit, Mr. Pride was named both Male Vocalist of the Year and Entertainer of the Year by the Country Music Association. He also won two Grammy Awards that year in the Sacred and Gospel Performance categories for a single with Let Me Live on one side and Did You Think to Pray on the other. He became a member of the Grand Ole Opry in 1993. The only African American to precede him on the show's cast was the harmonica player DeFord Bailey, a star on the Opry from 1927 to 1941. Mr. Pride was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame in 2000. 
In 2008, he and his brother, along with 28 other surviving veterans of Negro League Baseball, became honorary draftees of the 30 current teams in Major League Baseball in recognition of their achievements and of the larger legacy of the Negro Leagues. Mr. Pride was selected by the Texas Rangers, a franchise of which he was part owner and for whom he sang the national anthem before Game 5 of the 2010 World Series. Mr. Pride was honored last month with the Willie Nelson Lifetime Achievement Award from the Country Music Association. His final appearance was on November 11th at the CMA Awards in Nashville, where he sang Kiss an Angel with Jimmy Allen, one of several black contemporary country hitmakers to cite Mr. Pride as an influence. Organizers of the event said at the time that they were following all protocols for dealing with COVID-19, but some in attendance were not wearing masks. Mr. Pride's publicist said that he tested negative twice for the coronavirus after returning home. He was subsequently hospitalized for what doctors thought was double pneumonia, but which was determined to be COVID-19. I get a lot of questions asked me, Charlie, how'd you get into country music and why don't you sound like you're supposed to sound? He explained to his audience during a 1968 concert recording released by RCA. It's a little unique, I admit, he went on, but I've been singing country music since I was about five years old. This is why I sound like I sound. I was really sad to see the passing of Charlie Pride. I have to say, growing up in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, he was a voice you heard often being associated with the Texas Rangers. He's somebody we were all familiar with. Rest in peace, Charlie Pride. Okay, I'd like to turn to my discussion for today, and let me bring my guest on, Erica Earle. Erica is an active duty U.S. Army service member specializing in public affairs. She currently works as a reporter at Stars and Stripes in Tokyo, Japan. She's been reporting on how the coronavirus has impacted the military. She has a, uh, a large um, list of really interesting articles, and you can find those uh, on Stars and Stripes, and I'll be tweeting out some links to those articles. Erica Earl, thanks for making time to join me on COVID Calls today. Yes, thank you so much for having me. So let me start out by asking just uh, the usual question, which is where you're calling from and how the pandemic is looking there today. Of course. So I am stationed, as you mentioned, in Tokyo, Japan, specifically in a small suburb area in western Tokyo called Fusa. However, today I am talking to you from a bus, so hopefully you can hear me okay on the way to Kagura, which is a ski area, to bus about six service members and Department of Defense employees who can't go home for the holidays because of the coronavirus. So just so people know, this is why we don't have you on screen. You're actually six o'clock at 6.15 in the morning there and you're on a bus and uh, you're trying to be quiet for your neighbors and, and also cognizant of the uh, bandwidth issues. So thanks a lot for making time to, to talk under these circumstances. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you. Well, let's talk a little bit of just about your own uh, background, uh, where you're from and, and coming into the military and how you ended up writing for Stars and Stripes. Yes, I am originally from Sarasota, Florida, on the Sun Coast, I'm about 45 minutes away from Tampa. I worked as a civilian journalist there for the Bradenton Herald and the Sarasota Herald Tribune for about three years before I enlisted into the military. 
And I originally enlisted as a linguist and transitioned to public affairs. And I've been working in public affairs for the past four and a half years about. So can you talk a little bit about what it's been like, um, your own experience as a, a member of the armed forces there in Japan um, during this coronavirus time to so take us back to, I suppose, over there, it was January, people were starting to become alarmed. Yes. So the bases had to go into a lockdown status. Um, it's a confusing time because just like for the rest of the world, this pandemic was also brand new for the military. So we took a lot of our guidance from our host nation hosts, um, the local government, as well as the Department of Defense back in the U.S. What were some of the first things that happened um, on the base, the first kinds of changes that you saw that indicated to you something quite serious was underway? Um, just having kind of our ears to the ground with following the NHK and the CDC websites and, of course, all the other news across the world just reporting how it's just surmounting to be more and more serious. I didn't get out here until the summer, and I was actually delayed in my arrival because of the coronavirus. Um, I had to quarantine both stateside and upon my arrival in Japan. And by the time I got here, we were starting to allow people into town for necessities only. So it was really difficult for a lot of service members who maybe this is their very first time away from home or their very first overseas duty assignment. So I definitely feel for them. Was there uh, a set of protocols that were um, in force across the different branches of the military? Or how is that organized? Does each, each branch had some discretion to determine it, the, the way it would approach dealing with the coronavirus? Each branch and then really each commander is what it really came down to. Because with all of our scattered branch, like, installations we have both stateside and overseas it was really dependent on the climate of that specific region um, so here in tokyo with the cases starting to be quite alarming our base had to go into lockdown mode but maybe some bases such as fort riley kansas had had a different protocol so it was really at the discretion of each commander base by base however there are some overarching instructions we're following from the department of defense such as mandatory mask wearing, keeping our social distancing, um, travel that's only mission essential, which just recently got lifted for here. I don't know about bases stateside, but just we have to be in constant communication. And it's like I said, brand new. The military tends to be, as you probably know, just very regimented about everything that we do. And so to be in this brand new scenario, we definitely have to be in constant communication with each other and following the DOD's instruction in this kind of unprecedented time. So there's a, been a military-wide mask mandate? Yes. So we, have to, we basically follow the Department of Health and the CDC as well. And the mask mandate came out really at the start of the pandemic back in January, February. And the funny thing about that being military, of course, that we got on like what color the masks have to be and what kind of masks we have to wear because everything in the military is just so regimented. So 
that we're all kind of wearing matching face masks. So that was really interesting as well to try to scramble to, to get those. So, I mean, the United States military is a vast organization and it's all over the world. So I would never ask you to try to, to speak for it, at, you know, in its totality. I guess I'd be interested to know some of the stories that you've collected. People have shared with you their fears, concerns about family back home, challenges they've had while serving um, to get, you know, information, to get um, PPE testing. Take us inside the experience of the average soldier, if you could. Yes. So I can really speak on my experience personally as an active duty soldier and my experience, what I've seen in Japan. I just want to put a reminder, I'm not an official spokesperson for the U.S. Army, but I can gladly share my personal experience. Um, I personally am very concerned about my family stateside, especially Florida being kind of a hotbed. Um, right now, I have a couple family members who suspect they may have COVID. However, they have not tested positive, but they have to just keep making sure that they're okay. Wow. And of course, I'm very worried being so far away from home. And that's kind of been the situation for a lot of people here. People have lost family members. People have had scares when maybe an elderly family member has tested positive. People have gotten married or had children and haven't been able to even share that joy with their families back home. So it's hard on everybody. I'm assuming there are you know, resources available for soldiers, mental health resources, or um, you know, just the community of soldiers oh, when they face these kinds of stresses. But this is an acute kind of stress, as you were just saying. Um, following up, keeping up with family members at home and friends who are sick is, is really a challenge, isn't it? It really can be. Thankfully, we do have social media. And then we do have, you know, our modern technology advances, such as the one allowing us to do this podcast today. So we are very grateful for that. But it's nothing really beats in-person interaction. And especially now at the holiday time, it's kind of rough for some service members. We, a lot of the more veteran service members, we're used to being away from home on the holidays, used to deployments or other factors that keep us away from family. But for some of our brand new service members, it's definitely tough. Something you said a minute ago really is resonant, which is that um, if you wanted to go home, uh, if you were able to get leave to go home and visit, you might be facing some quarantine issues that would make that logistically quite difficult, right? Yes, and that is something actually... <laughs> Policy-wise, that the Army and not just the Army, but all the military bases have been struggling to kind of balance because this is so new to everybody. But yes, you would have to quarantine and figure that out into your schedule. And, you know, if your command would even want you away that long. So it's been kind of challenging for people to even try to coordinate that. And then there's just, of course, the fear of safety. Like, just because we technically can travel, should we? So do you have a, a sense of the scale of the number of cases that have um, been reported in the armed forces? I mean, how serious has coronavirus been in terms of cases and deaths? So I don't have stats as far as military poll to, uh, total cases. We, we do on each installation's own website and Facebook pages since the start, they have been releasing their numbers. Um, so if you anyone is curious about a certain installation, 
you can find their Facebook page and find that information there. They Most of them have been releasing a daily update. Just want to remind folks, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Erica Earl today, a reporter for Stars and Stripes, who's based in Japan. Erica, let me ask you a little bit about the way that the coronavirus has impacted the military more broadly. I know it's been reported, for example, back in the late winter, that the joint military exercises in South Korea were canceled, um, that maybe some uh, troops pulled back from Iraq as a result of coronavirus. I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. I mean, how has the pandemic impacted the military's ability to um, do its normal trainings and exercises? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, my personal change of station to even come to Japan was also delayed. Um, we had basically a total halt of all PCSs, ex except for ones that were considered mission essential back in the springtime. And so that was kind of unprecedented. And then, of course, now um, our physical trainings have been placed on a hold as well. Now, each branch is kind of handling it differently as far as unrolling and trying to figure out the restart and resumption of our trainings. But because of the this massive gatherings that are required for a lot of these training events, we have had to take pause. And normally, the military has our standard of we train in any environment, no matter the conditions. However, even even service members aren't immune to something like a pandemic. So it's definitely been something new. We have moved a lot of our trainings to virtual as well. Fortunately, because of technology, we haven't had to halt everything. But that's been a unique experience in its own, just from my perspective, too. Well, let's follow up on that a little bit. How do you, I mean... That's a quite an improvisation, isn't it, to go from training exercises that are usually done in person on the ground to somehow bringing them into the virtual? Yes. Now, it's not completely new because we have had some of our trainings be computer-based before. But it's interesting to do it long-term, and especially with no really end in sight currently. It's also been interesting, and I wrote an article on this, the communication over the computer. It's definitely very different from being face-to-face -face with your commander or your superiors. Kind of that regimented chain of command behavior that um, service members are expected to have can feel kind of different when you have this sense of anonymity behind your computer screen. So that is something I wrote about as well that has been kind of a change and maybe even a hard adjustment for some soldier, um, soldiers and service members. I thought that was a really interesting article and raised some issues I wouldn't have considered before. I mean, social media, for good or for bad, is a is a great leveler in many ways, which doesn't necessarily square with the hierarchical culture of the military. Tell us a little bit more about that story and some of the problems that have emerged in that. In, in the yeah, so fortunately it hasn't been a huge issue, but um, when it is, everyone definitely knows about it. Um, the comment sections of our training are open 
and while they are moderated, they're not always moderated in real time. So it kind of gives soldiers this opportunity, and I keep saying soldiers because I'm a soldier, but I really mean service members, an opportunity to discuss, which is a great thing, but it can also leave that little bit of room to also kind of comment whatever you want. Um, I think the best example of that is with the chief sergeant major of the Air Force and an E-5, who, which is a sergeant, commenting um, about the pronunciation of her last name. And, you know, it was all in good fun, but maybe not good taste. So I just like kind of a reminder that for not just military, but other professionals as well who might be using social media platforms that, you know, it's still a professional work environment, even if it's something that maybe before was kind of set aside for your leisure time. So how did that manifest itself in that particular case? People were... In, engaged in the chat while there was a, a briefing going on, or this was uh, in some other medium? Uh, it was an open conversation um, that everyone was, you know, participating in to throw around ideas. It was very much an open kind of Q&A kind of forum. So, you know, commenting was encouraged. However, I just, you know, even though when commenting is encouraged, it's important to remember the professionalism aspect, which you know, can get easily lost when you're on a medium like Facebook. So let's talk a little bit about just the sort of day-to-day experience of a service member. And since you're, you know, can speak from your own experience about how things are different now from how they would have been a, a year ago. Sort of take us through the kind of all of the changes that you might see in a regular day that uh, you wouldn't have expected to be describing to me today. Of course. Well, some people aren't even working from their offices, depending on how small their space is. In the military, some of our workspaces can be quite cozy. We don't always have the luxury of space, which last year, um, we just kind of sucked it up. But this year of Corona, we have to have that caution. So some people have been teleworking. I know for me, that was the first to telework this year. Uh, obviously, not everyone can with their job. So... If you can't, then they've been having like kind of rotational schedules of people coming in just to enforce social distancing. The term social distancing is definitely something I never thought I'd say so much before this year. Um, at the end of the day, the military is just kind of an organization like another workplace. So kind of the same kind of stressors, um, not knowing how long this is going to last and having to move things around, not being able to come together in large groups. and as we mentioned earlier, kind of having to put some trainings on halt, um, making sure we're maintaining our physical fitness and still ready to fight, even though we're not actually gathering for physical training. That's been a challenge as well, especially earlier this year when gyms had to close. So making sure we're staying fit and tough, um, making sure we're staying mentally tough and taking care of our mental health in the middle of this pandemic, especially when we are all having to quarantine, um, making sure soldiers and service members are seeking out those resources. It's a lot to consider. And even things like, you know, hands-on training that maybe can't be done virtually, that's going to be interesting to get back into as well. Is there some concern that in this period of time, um, you know, capacity might decrease? You know, the training is not the same. There's some worry that the armed forces may not be able to keep up with the sort of normal level of readiness. 
Uh, I would say that we're definitely doing everything we can to ensure that level of readiness. Um, personally speaking, from my personal command team, um, we do regular checks and check downs on our people to, you know, just ask like the very human question, are you okay? And, you know, maybe they feel comfortable being honest with us, maybe they don't. But even just that first step of just asking if the service member is okay is crucial to mission readiness. And then, you know, just handing out exercise plans that people can do in their homes without equipment and sending videos and um, kind of our technical manuals so everyone can mentally and kind of, you know, on paper go through the steps of everything to keep it fresh in their minds. So it's a lot of work, I will say, to do this in this kind of strange, I will say, time. It definitely takes a lot of discipline. The other thing I was thinking about um, was about recruitment. Any, any indications of how recruitment is has been going this year? Again, that's something that one thinks about a, a recruitment office or a recruitment officer going out to campuses that interpersonal connection being pretty crucial, I think. How has recruitment been this year? So something interesting that I found out when I was doing a story on military esports teams last week is that esports, such as video games like Call of Duty um, and Twitch live streamers who on their channel stream their video play, um, have been used as a recruitment tool as service branches have their own esports teams. So I thought that was really interesting. And social media has still been a really strong tool for that. As far as numbers, that's not really in my wheelhouse. So unfortunately, I, I just don't know about literal numbers. But I found it really interesting that, that video game streaming has even been a platform for recruiting. I would have never thought of that personally. Mm -hmm. And just to come back to the training issue for a second, I mean, I know there are many... Um, you know, jobs in the military seems like could be adapted to um, distance um, training, virtual training, online training. But, you know, think of other things, um, you know, combat training, uh, for example, you know, special forces and things like that. I don't know if you've been able to keep up with those stories, but I'm really curious to know what's been going on in, in that regard. I mean, do they just try to adapt to social distance and mask wearing and contact tracing? Or is that something you've been following? Yeah, so everyone in the military, like no one's really ex is excluded from this pandemic, has been having to adapt. So it's been really interesting to kind of go through really not only service branch by service branch, but job by job. And that's something we've kind of gradually and slowly been doing at Stars and Stripes is trying to consider every angle. So I'm definitely still not done reporting on COVID, and which is crazy because it's almost been going on a year later now. So there's always stories there for how service members are adopting it, maybe even struggling right now. So definitely the storytelling for that is not finished. So I definitely encourage people to keep following it on Stars and Stripes and uh, Installation's personal Facebook pages as well for those answers because it really changes day by day. Let me ask you um, about some of the issues um, that are related to the bases. Because we have military bases, the United States has military bases all over the world. This is a pandemic that has played out differently in different countries. The experience in Japan, South Korea, different from the experience in India and in Europe. Um, tell us a little bit about some of the challenges there in terms of 
um, keeping the bases COVID free, but then also the problem with soldiers, uh, uh, military personnel going off base. Yes, so we definitely owe it to our host nation to not only protect ourselves, but protect their people too. And that has been the most important thing really about following host nation protocols is remembering that we're, we are guests ultimately in their country and we owe it to help keep their civilian population safe as well. Um, for example, in Tokyo, we are not authorized currently to go into central populated Tokyo. And that can be, you know, maybe challenging for some people who have never been to Japan before. So just that constant reminder that we owe it to everybody to keep them safe. And it's also kind of been a struggle, really, for even relationships in town. Um, as Americans, you know, ambassadors of our of our home country, like, people know how severe it's been in America. So really just remembering that we're kind of the face of that. And so if we're not wearing our mask, if we're not social distancing, if we're not using hand sanitizer or following protocol, we're kind of ambassadors for the United States and how foreigners would act in a different country. So it's so, so critical that when we're out in public, especially, that we do that. And what about the opposite of that issue? I mean, the bases are not closed off, right? They have um, providers, service providers, um, technicians, people who come in and onto the bases who are civilians. That sounds yes. like a very difficult logistical thing to manage. Oh, it is because, you know, even just being able to figure out where everybody's coming from and commuting from. Um, that's why actually currently on Yokota Air Base where I'm stationed, we still do have a significant amount of our civilian populace teleworking and working from home if possible. So tell us a little bit about this trip you're on today. Yeah, so this is really special and challenging, honestly, as well in the time of COVID, just to make sure we're doing this safely and, you know, staggered on the bus and everyone wearing their masks. But um, on our base, we have an organization called Outdoor Rec. And normally, under non-pandemic circumstances, they provide several trips for service members and their families and civilian contractors to be able to get off base and enjoy. But because this year our off-base exploration has been so limited, um, they've been trying to do what they can, especially for people now in December as we approach the holidays who either can't go home because of you know a variety of reasons, not being able to take the time to quarantine and all that, or just being nervous for health reasons to go home, or you know people who are civilians who really can't go because they would might have issues returning, things like that. So they are doing some ski trips to kind of, you know, have some holiday magic a little bit and fun in the safest way possible. So there's a series of those happening now. Um, and there's, it's a series because obviously we can only take so many people on the bus safely. So that is happening. So I plan on following up on that too, to talk about what we can do to boost morale for people in this really trying time and really unique holiday season. There was a story that you wrote that I was interested in also, um, which seemed to be you were reporting on some of the concerns about um, medical waste and PPE that was um, sort of 
accumulating on bases and that still had yes. some dangers associated with it as it leaves the base. Can you talk Correct. about that story? Yeah, so uh, people may not realize that in this pandemic, you know, COVID affects everything, including our garbage. So masks that get discarded or gloves that get discarded and don't get disposed of not only pose an environmental risk, but also a risk for people who work in waste management and waste collection to be handling things that have been on your face or been in your hands or been near your mouth and exposed to potential pathogens. So FACE has had a very special way of collecting and incinerating that trash and trying to keep it compartmentalized. And that's also been a brand new thing that we had to consider. Of course, we've always considered environmental you know, security before because we do want to try to be the best we can be for our host nation and being environmentally cautious. But this has a whole new edge trying to think about mask and PPE disposal. So it's affecting everything down to our trash. And is medical care always takes place on base? Any medical needs that a service member might have if they're in a country outside the United States? Is that always on base? Because I think about some of the real difficult medical challenges of coronavirus and, and wondering if soldiers ever have to be treated off base. Yes. So this year at ECOTA, they've had to kind of step up and have some um, kind of ancillary clinics that were kind of on the move. That stateside as well, earlier this year, I reported on a hospital that was set up actually at the CenturyLink Field Seahawks Stadium. So that was really interesting um, back in the, in the height of it. So here, for the most part, we have been able to treat everyone on base. But occasionally someone with a very special need might need a referral into town. And that's not necessarily unique to COVID. However, during COVID, it is a little more of a challenge, especially during the height of it, if other places were burdened with patients. So it's kind of just that continued partnership. And I can only really speak on what I reported on, which is that, you know, setting up other mobile facilities on base to conduct testing, to keep that separate from the hospital. Um, they had like a bus um, sponsored by the hospital that would go around for COVID testing. That way you didn't actually have to go into the hospital. So that was interesting. I That's how I got my test actually was on one of the buses. Hmm. And has testing been uh, mandatory on a regular basis or is it something that you elect? So it is mandatory upon arrival after you quarantine for two weeks. Um, as an arrival for your very first time from another duty station. And after that, um, they only really test if you will be going overseas for something mission essential, which hasn't really been happening often. So the testing is kind of just on a mandatory basis. However, people can elect to take the test. Um, that works on a base by base kind of situation. So anyone who would like to take a test, especially if they do plan on trying to travel right now, should contact their own installation to see how to do that. There was uh, another aspect of this I wanted to just get your perspective on. I know it's something you've been following and reporting on, too, is some of the tensions that might arise when um, military personnel are told that they have to quarantine and I wonder, how does compensation work at that time? Are they paid during that time? Yes. So service members are still active, still 
considered working um, if they're in quarantine, even if they can't telework, um, they're still available, they're still active. And then the Air Force and the Marines both are actually currently compensating any time that was charged as leave during quarantine. Because there was some confusion at the beginning over whether or not that would count against vacation days. So um, you can read about that in one of my stories as well, about mm-hmm. how the branches are compensating that leave time. Because no one should have lost vacation days for that. So if they did, they can get that compensated. Well, let me get one more question in, Erica. I know you're you're in transit there, and I do appreciate you working around that um, with me today. Um, uh, yeah. What are, what are some of the stories or one or two stories that you think are going to be really crucial to understanding the military experience of COVID-19 as we go into next year? Um, really just understanding how we're going to resume everything. And that's something I'll be following as well, because I am still very curious. And there's answers that I do not know that I am kind of chopping up a bit to find out myself as a service member. Um, more clear guidance on resuming of fitness assessments and more clear guidance on the vaccine. That's going to be huge. So that's really what we're following currently and things I don't have info on yet, but will be critical. Well, I want to thank my guest today, Erica Earl, who's talking to us on COVID calls by way of a cell phone on her way to report um in uh in japan a couple hours north of tokyo erica thanks so much for your reporting and we'll be following it and thanks so much for joining me today on COVID Calls. and then you get an applause in the background we just now outstanding just now made it to Kagura. so i feel very special even though i know that's not for me but thank you so much for having me okay take care thanks all right bye Okay, tremendous uh, perspective there from Erica Earl, and thanks to Erica for joining us as a reporter from Stars and Stripes, giving us the perspective of the military, and we will um, follow up with that as well. So many different um, vantage points on that, obviously, with United States service members uh, deployed around the world. It's uh, just like the pandemic itself. It's a global experience and, and requires a global and comparative points of view. I want to close today. Um, actually reading a story from the New York Times that appeared yesterday. It's um, a new chapter in this pandemic and one that we're going to spend some, I imagine, great deal of time talking about on COVID calls in the coming months. And that has to do with the vaccine. So let me read this story to mark this uh, moment of history and this uh, moment in the pandemic. The headline is, First Coronavirus Vaccines Bring Americans Hope in Small Doses. This was reported by the great Campbell Robertson, as well as Amy Harmon and Mitch Smith, and was published yesterday in the New York Times. Dateline is Pittsburgh. Some of the very medical centers that have endured the worst of the coronavirus outbreak in the United States found the gloom that has long filled their corridors replaced by elation and hope on Monday as healthcare workers became the first to take part in a mass vaccination campaign aimed at ending the pandemic. Hundreds of those 
who have been on the front lines of fighting COVID-19, a nurse from an intensive care unit in New York, an emergency room doctor from Ohio, a hospital housekeeper in Iowa, received inoculations in emotional ceremonies watched by people around the country. I feel like healing is coming, said Sandra Lindsay, an intensive care nurse who was among the first healthcare workers to be vaccinated on Monday morning at Long Island Jewish Medical Center in Queens, an early center of the virus. But the vaccinations came as the nation surpassed 300,000 coronavirus deaths, a toll larger than any other country. Even as applause rang out at hospitals nationwide, many intensive care units remained near capacity and public health experts warned that life would not return to normal until well into next year. Plunking down in wooden chairs and rolling up their sleeves were physicians, nurses, aides, cleaners, and at least one chief executive who said he was getting the vaccine early to encourage everyone on his staff to do the same. Dr. Jason Smith, the first Kentuckian to receive the COVID-19 vaccine, showed off the smiley face band-aid a healthcare worker applied to his arm. Didn't even feel it, he said. A group of nuns in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, blessed the vaccine as it arrived before it was whisked into a freezer. Seth Jackson, a nurse in Iowa City, found himself crying on the way to the hospital to get his shot. Robin Mercier, a Rhode Island nurse, rejoiced in feeling one step closer to being able to kiss her grandchild. This is the marking of getting back to normal, said Angela Mattingly, a housekeeper at the University of Iowa Hospital, who was fifth in line as shots were dispensed on the 12th floor. One of those who had spent months studying the safety of the vaccine was herself vaccinated. This is the culmination of a lot of hard work in our clinical trials, said Dr. Patricia Wienaker, 61, the principal investigator of the clinical trial of the vaccine and a professor at the University of Iowa. Our team has worked hard, and I am so proud to have been a part of it. Not far from the White House, five health workers at George Washington University Hospital were given shots in a small auditorium at a national ceremonial kickoff event staged by the Department of Health and Human Services. Alex M. Azar II, the health secretary, said that the vaccinations in Washington were, quote, representative of what's happening across America right now, unquote, adding that he would visit other vaccination sites in the coming weeks. The first vaccinations come at the bleakest moment of the pandemic in the United States. The country is averaging more than 2,400 deaths a day, even more than in the spring. More than twice as many deaths are being announced each day than just a month ago. Reports of new cases and hospitalizations have also reached records in recent days. Even as infection numbers have started falling in parts of the Midwest and the Mountain West, some of the country's largest population centers are worsening rapidly. California recently became the first state to announce more than 30,000 cases in a day. New York is averaging nearly five times as many cases statewide as it was at the beginning of November. Pennsylvania, Ohio, Tennessee, and Georgia were among 12 states that set weekly case records on Sunday. For many Americans who have lost loved ones to COVID-19, news of the vaccination rollout was bittersweet. It did not come soon enough for Mary Smith's husband, Mike, who died from the virus in November at the age of 64 after rapidly becoming fatigued, short of breath, and feverish. It was so close, Ms. Smith, who lives outside Peoria, Illinois, said on Monday. She voiced frustration with people who said they did not trust the vaccine. An Associated Press poll released last week found that half of Americans were ready to take a vaccine, a percentage that public health experts said could jeopardize its benefits. 
These people who say, I'm not getting it, all I can say is, why? Have you lost your mind? Miss Smith added. Have you not seen how many people have died? This is real. Miss Lindsay, the nurse from Long Island Jewish Medical Center, who is black, volunteered to be among the first New Yorkers to be vaccinated, saying that she wanted to encourage people skeptical of vaccines to get a shot, and particularly black Americans who have died from the virus at disproportionate rates. I've been waiting for this day not only for myself, but to show people it's safe, Miss Lindsay, the director of critical care nursing, said. I want people who look like me and are associated with me to know it's safe. About 600 sites, many of them hospitals, were scheduled to receive the first of nearly 3 million doses of the vaccine this week. Some 500,000 doses were delivered on Monday to 142 of the sites around the country. The rollout Starting with high-risk healthcare workers and nursing home residents is a monumental logistical challenge, and there so far is no uniform approach to publicly reporting where vaccines have been received and how many doses have been administered. Puerto Rico's efforts to vaccinate the public hit a logistical snag on Monday when the government received half the expected doses and had to scramble to readjust its plan. Several states and hospital systems announced that they had received initial shipments or started giving shots on Monday though usually without much numerical detail. Other states provided more specifics, including Alaska, where 35,100 doses landed on a UPS plane, and Mississippi, where 25,000 doses were spread across several facilities. By the day's end, it was unclear exactly how many Americans had received an initial dose of the approved vaccine made by Pfizer-BioNTech. Another vaccine made by the biotech company Moderna is likely to receive emergency authorization on Friday. The shipping of 6 million doses to 3,285 U.S. locations would start on the weekend, officials said, with the first vaccinations taking place by next Monday. The available supply of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine is not enough to inoculate all of the doctors, nurses, security guards, receptionists, and other workers at risk of daily exposure to the virus, forcing hospitals to decide whom to give priority. There was no single method. The group in Washington was selected by an algorithm based on a survey of hospital employees that asked about age and underlying medical conditions. At the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, an advisory group devised an order that took into consideration prevention of transmission and underlying conditions, as well as the hospital's ability to continue its own operations, said Dr. Graham Snyder its medical director of infection prevention. The Pittsburgh hospital received 975 doses of the Pfizer vaccine on Monday and would be giving a necessary second shot to the first wave of recipients in the coming weeks. Dr. Snyder believed that the medical center's entire workforce, there are about 60,000 frontline healthcare workers in the network, could be vaccinated within a couple of months. For all it pretended at the end of a year of misery and death, the operation was surprisingly mundane. A little trickle of blood here and there, followed by small talk and cotton swabs, and it was done. At a news conference, some of the recipients discussed the thinking and procedures that led to them being among the first vaccine recipients in the city. Tammy Muneer, a nurse and the chief quality officer at the medical center, likened the moment to the development of the polio vaccine by Dr. Jonas Salk in the 1950s. And we all know the benefit that humanity has seen from that, she said. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis announced the arrival of vaccines to the state from Tampa General Hospital at 11 a.m., about an hour after the shipment of the first batch had reached the facility. Moments later, 
Vanessa Arroyo, a 31-year-old nurse from Tampa General's COVID-19 unit, got the hospital's first vaccine. Ms. Arroyo, who wore a mask, sat in front of the cameras while Rafael Martinez, another nurse, administered the shot to her left arm. Yay, Mr. DeSantis said as the room burst into applause. Dr. Charles Lockwood, the dean of the University of South Florida Medical School, who was in attendance, called the inoculation a magic moment and compared it to watching the astronaut Neil Armstrong walk on the moon. The bulk of inoculations went to medical workers on Monday, but they were not the only ones. Governor Jim Justice of West Virginia was vaccinated as cameras rolled. Christopher Miller, the acting defense secretary, received the coronavirus vaccine at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, and in Bedford, Massachusetts. A World War II veteran became the first patient at a U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs facility to receive a COVID-19 vaccine. The veteran, Margaret Clessens, who is 96 and a resident of the Veterans Affairs Bedford Healthcare System, was vaccinated just after noon, according to the hospital's Twitter account. The Department of Veterans Affairs will be distributing vaccines at 37 locations across the country prioritizing residents of long-term care facilities and healthcare workers. In Fargo, North Dakota, a state devastated by the virus, the Sanford Health Hospital's pharmacy staff carried out an elaborate plan on Monday morning, even before vaccines could start. They unpacked their first shipment of vaccines, which arrived at 7.02 a.m., and rushed them into an ultra-cold freezer, a delicate, carefully timed operation that needed to happen in less than five minutes to ensure the vaccine would stay at the low temperatures needed to ensure its effectiveness. Monty Remich, the hospital's pharmacy manager, pried open the box and checked a temperature sensor to ensure the vaccine had stayed sufficiently chilly on its day-long journey from the Pfizer plant in western Michigan to North Dakota. He slipped on a pair of thick blue cold-resistant gloves and, one by one, scooted the trays into a new freezer that will keep the vaccine at some 94 degrees below zero until they're ready to use. David Liedahl, the director of the pharmacy, clapped as Mr. Remich slid the just-delivered vaccines into the freezer, saying, it's even better than Christmas. The story was, first coronavirus vaccines bring Americans hope in small doses. By Campbell Robertson, Amy Harmon, and Mitch Smith, it appeared December 14th in the New York Times. That's COVID calls for today. I want to thank my guest, Erica Earl from Stars and Stripes, for giving us a perspective of the military in the coronavirus era. And you can join COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. Stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow at 5 o'clock.